0: My name's Chris, and I have the privilege of preaching this morning. Uh, We have a lot to cover, so we're going to dive right in. Um, We'll we'll sort of be in and around Matthew 7 this morning. So if you want to go ahead and turn there, if you have a Bible, that's where we will eventually be. Um, Before starting the sermon itself, I want to give an update. So a couple weeks ago... The last Sunday of Advent, my wife Melissa and I stood right there. We lit a candle and we uh, told you all how we had been working toward becoming certified foster parents. And um, at that point, we had turned in all the stuff we needed to turn in. We uh, uh, were told like we could be certified at any point once they process everything. Um, the next day, that Monday, we got an email around 2.30 saying, hey, you're certified foster parents. And we're like, cool, that's awesome. Um, About two hours later, they were like, hey, here's a kid. (laughs) Um, And so since that point, since that Monday, the day after we gave that update, uh, we have had a two-year-old roommate um, living with us. And um, it's been a whirlwind, and it's been crazy and awesome and all the things. Um, Toward the beginning of our journey, um, and if you came to any of the the monthly men's gatherings uh, around that time, maybe in August or so, uh, you heard me talk about this, but i was I was very much like pumping the brakes, trying to slow down on fostering Melissa was gung ho full full steam ahead she was ready um, and in in those moments, the Lord brought to me this verse that i 'm about to read um, just to sort of help comfort me and show me that it 's not my job to control everything and to make everything uh, make sure everything works out um, and to have all the answers even up front. Before I can say yes to something. That verse is in Deuteronomy 31. Um, It's when Joshua is taking over for Moses, um, about to lead the Israelites into the promised land. Um, It says, it is the Lord who goes before you. He will be with you. He will not leave you or forsake you. Do not fear or be dismayed. And when I read that in those moments of doubt and just worry about uncertainty and unknowns, um, it hit me very hard to the point where I wrote it on this little note card, and it's been hanging in my office ever since, just as a daily reminder that the Lord is working things well in advance uh, for us. So back to that phone call we got. Um, We got placed with a little boy, and he's awesome. And immediately people started offering things. Um, We had gift cards and gifts and things from the shower that the church threw us. Um, people gave us cash they uh, offered to buy us meals or cook for us Um, they bought clothes they bought gifts so he could have a christmas um it's to the point where it's been nearly a month and we've had to spend very little of our own money to get started and that is how the lord did this he he had y'all he worked through y'all to uh provide those good things um to answer those prayers and those unknowns. Um, so I want to thank y'all. I want to brag on Jesus because of how he works through y'all. Um, it's been incredible to watch this church body rise up and our family and friends rise up and just sort of meet our obedience step, uh, with their own to say, Hey, we're with you in this. So thank you so much. So to the sermon, um, Matthew seven, um, you may be familiar with the verses I'm about to read. Um, throughout my 13 years of knowing and following Jesus, I'm swap these. Um, God has used this parable that Jesus tells to push me to reexamine my own beliefs and humble me when my thinking about him has strayed away uh, from the reality of what Jesus revealed to be true about God in the world. So we're going to read this parable up front and then... Um, We're going to like circle around to it at the end of the sermon as well. Um, So Matthew seven, starting in verse 24, it says, everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. The rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat on that house, but it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. The rain fell, the floods came, and the winds blew and beat against that house. And it fell, and great was the fall of it. So these are the words of Jesus, our Savior. Um, The same Jesus who during every uh, Advent and Christmas season we celebrate in a very unique way by focusing intently on the fact that um, he was born human. Our God was born human. Um, This is called the incarnation. Um, Incarnation refers to the fact that Jesus, eternally existing and fully uh, divine, came into this world fully human. He wears the same flesh as you and me. So to explore the wide range of, of practical implications of the incarnation, I want to just read some scripture. Um, there's so much to talk about with this one topic, and it's not what the sermon's about, but it sort of sets us up. So instead of just talking about it, I want to just read some scripture. Um, so here are my, um, my, some of my favorite verses having to do with the humanity of Jesus. <clears throat> so starting in John 1, verse 1, In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. And the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. And skip ahead to verse 9. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. And then verse 18 says, no one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. Uh, Then Colossians 1 says, he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile himself to all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Then in Philippians 2, Paul says, says, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count in with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. Being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Then in Hebrews uh, chapter 2, It says, therefore, he had to be he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he may that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. Then Hebrews four, it says, since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens. Jesus, the son of God, let us hold fast our confession for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Um, one of my favorite Christmas hymns we sing is Hark the Herald Angels Sing. And there's a line in that that just like strikes me every time we sing it. Um, and we sing, Veiled in flesh the Godhead see, Hail the incarnate deity, Pleased as man with men to dwell, Jesus our Emmanuel. He was with us, God with us. That's our Savior, our God who humbled himself to be born a human, the creator of the universe, becoming dependent on his mother, to feed him, to clothe him, to clean and bathe him. Our God laughed. He cried. He felt happiness and sorrow. Our God got hungry and thirsty. He got tired and took naps. He experienced the ups and downs of friendship. He experienced both edification and betrayal. He was loved and hated. He was misunderstood and humiliated. The incarnation makes it possible for us to relate to Jesus. We know that Jesus has experiential knowledge of what it's like to feel the brokenness of the world. We do not have a God who is perched on a mountaintop looking down on us, making judgment calls in our lives while remaining isolated from the pain and brokenness of this world. Paul says Jesus emptied Himself. He sacrificed the privileges and safety of an eternity in heaven in full communion with the Father, so that He could know us more intimately, and so that we may know Him without hindrance or restriction. Jesus, flesh and blood, let us see God. Says He's the He's the image of the invisible God. Our God is not an abstraction. He's a person. And as a person, he was able to reveal not only God to us in human terms, but also make the kingdom of God a reality for each of us. So we're going to just sort of go through Matthew for a bit, um, touching on, reading some of it, talking about some of it, and uh, that's going to be the rest of the sermon. Easy, right? Um, So in the Gospels, one of the first stories of Jesus as an adult we are given is the story of his baptism. Uh, This is sort of presented as a coronation. You have Jesus coming up from the waters and then the father crying out from heaven. This is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Then we see Jesus on the front end of his earthly ministry, head into the wilderness for 40 days of fasting and prayer. There he's tempted and tried by Satan, but resisting temptation, he perseveres in the father's will and is ready for a life of ministry that will eventually lead him to his death. Um after this uh, and before calling his disciples, there's a single verse that I want to read and sort of have it frame the rest of our time. Um, Matthew four seventeen says From that time Jesus began to preach, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. So from the moment of his emergence from the wilderness, Jesus's life was dedicated to revealing the present reality of the kingdom of God um, and inviting people to believe and trust in the good news of that kingdom. A few verses later in Matthew 4, it says, and he went throughout all Galilee teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom, healing every disease and every affliction among the people. What follows this is the Sermon on the Mount, which besides being the most sermon ever, uh, it's a pure distillation of the values and ethics of the kingdom Jesus is introducing to people in fullness for the first time. So going forward, I want to frame our discussion on the kingdom of God with the concept, the philosophical concept of worldview. Um, So that concept, the concept of worldview was introduced by Immanuel Kant in the late 1700s. Um, from there it expanded into most sociological and philosophical fields of study, um, including how people study world religions. Uh, Christian anthropologist Charles Charles Kraft defines worldview as the culturally structured set of assumptions underlying how a people perceive and respond to reality. So my personal worldview is made up of my personal assumptions, biases, Values, identity statements, and ethics that I've collected through my experiences so far throughout life. Um, all these things influence the way I not only see the world, but also how I interact with it. So, that definition again is worldview is the culturally structured set of assumptions underlying how a people perceive and respond to reality. So, my personal worldview impacts the way I interpret the Bible. It impacts the way I interact with strangers. It uh, drives forward my approach to marriage and to loving Melissa. It is the reason I see ministry and kingdom work the way that I do. We each have a personal worldview, and that worldview is often the unnoticed motor behind our behavior and thoughts, propelling us forward as we continue to try and make sense of the world around us. Personal worldviews are the reason we can each experience the exact same event or circumstance and come away with completely different uh, conclusions. So, in an attempt to illustrate this, I want us to go on a hypothetical hike together. Um, So, in this hypothetical, we have two people. One is a Christian who sees the world through a perspective influenced by a life of following Jesus, and the other is his friend who happens to be an atheist who is not influenced by that same worldview. So both of these friends, they, on the hike, they will see the same sights, they will hear the same sounds, they tread the exact same ground together, but they will likely have two different experiences. An atheist may take in the majesty of the mountains and the valleys as they hike and rightly acknowledge the beauty of the view and the surroundings. A Christian will see the same sights and be driven to worship by the spectacle of their God's beautiful creation. An atheist may walk past a field, of, a field full of blooming flowers, acknowledging the beautiful colors, maybe even picking one to bring home to their significant other. Meanwhile, the Christian sees the flowers and begins to meditate on Jesus proclaiming, I am making all things new. Or they may be comforted by the fact that the lilies don't have to work to be clothed in such beauty. So how much more will God take care of us? While stopping to eat lunch, the atheist may enjoy his sandwich and recognize it as fuel for the rest of the hike, perhaps delighting in the taste of the sandwich if it's a good sandwich. Um, But the Christian would pause before eating and thank God, knowing his lunch is evidence of the providence of the Father. When recapping their hike to friends, the atheist will recap mileage, the specific trails and the things he saw, and the Christian will speak of the wonder and beauty and how God spoke to him throughout the hike, and all the things he learned. Both friends had enjoyable and memorable experiences, but the meaning assigned to those experiences are inherently different because of the personal worldviews that each individual has. These are broad hypothetical generalizations uh, made for the purpose of illustrating the point, but the truth is the way we see the world around us and the meaning we assign to our circumstances, uh, both as we go through them and after the fact, are all tinted by our own personal worldviews. Um, and these are the most, mostly unconscious sets of assumptions and values that are constantly running in the background. So back to Jesus. Um, he comes on the scene and immediately starts proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom, telling people, repent, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And one of the first things he does after kicking off his earthly ministries is gives a lecture on the kingdom of God, um, and he invites people to start interpreting reality through a kingdom worldview. So let's look at Matthew five, um, starting in verse one. It says, seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain. that Jesus says is at hand. It's easy to let these words bounce off your brain because we've heard the Beatitudes so many times or we see them every day driving through Baton Rouge on Gordon McKernan's billboards. Um, But the Beatitudes give us a snapshot of the miraculously countercultural and revolutionary ways of the kingdom of God. Are you poor in spirit? Jesus says not only are you welcome in the kingdom of God, but you are blessed within it. Have you experienced great loss? Are you debilitated by grief? In the kingdom of God, mourners are comforted. Unlike in the rest of the world, the meek, not the powerful, will inherit the earth. Do you have the unquenchable hunger or thirst for righteousness? In the kingdom of God, you will eat and drink your fill. In the kingdom of God, the merciful are not taken advantage of, but they receive mercy themselves. In the kingdom of God, the pure in heart see God. Peace is such a foundational value of the kingdom of God that the makers of peace will be called sons of God. And even if the rest of the world hates you enough to persecute you, you belong to a kingdom where rejoicing and gladness are not only possibilities, but seen as responses to that persecution. In the Beatitudes and throughout the rest of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus recognizes cultural and religious norms of a world obsessed with power, wealth, personal gain, and happiness, and presents a new way to live life and a new way to perceive reality. When talking about how Christians should live their lives in a broken world, we often hear the phrase, we live in the world and not of it. Jesus lived in a religious culture that was hyper-focused on rule following as a means of earning God's favor. This is the world Jesus knew intimately because it was the world in which he grew up, But, as he makes evident throughout the Sermon on the Mount and the rest of the Gospels, it is not the true reality that Jesus lived from. He lived in that world, but not from it. Jesus' kingdom worldview makes it possible to live in a legalistic, hard-hearted culture, but remain grounded in love, forgiveness, and mercy. And he's inviting his listeners to begin the process of abandoning the mainstream worldview of their culture and adopting the reality of the true and now present kingdom worldview that he came to initiate and reveal. A little bit later in the sermon, uh, Jesus says, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. So when talking about the law within the context of the kingdom of God, he uh, a few times throughout the Sermon on the Mount, he uses the following rhetorical phrase, You have heard it said blank, but I say to you, blank. So you have heard it said, murdering your brother is bad, right? But I say to you, if you even have anger toward your brother, you're liable to judgment. You have heard it said to always follow through on oaths you make in the Lord's name. But I say to you, don't even make an oath at all. (laughs) You've heard it said "To uh, to not commit adultery. But I say to you, If you even look at another person with lustful intent, you have committed adultery. This structure is repeated throughout the beginning stages of the Sermon on the Mount, and it's meant to not only be corrective, but also point to Jesus himself as the fulfillment of all the law that the Pharisees were dedicating their entire being to upholding. As broken people greatly impacted by sin, um, these are impossible standards to live up to. Jesus knows that. He's not setting his followers up for a trap. He's not setting us up to fail. Um, Rather, I think he's making two important points about being a citizen in the kingdom of God. The first is that in the kingdom of God, grace is the ruling form of judgment. Remember, Jesus said, I have not come to abolish the law or the prophets, but to fulfill them. Jesus did what none of us could do so that we can have a context of grace in which to grow into the likeness of Christ. And the second one follows this, that growing into the likeness of God, that transformation into Christ-likeness, it happens from the inside out, not by trying to behave rightly. Um, it's a matter of heart. With the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is aiming straight for his listeners' inner lives. He's essentially saying, I've taken care of the law so you don't have to worry about doing everything in your power to maintain a right relationship with God. Let's instead focus on learning how to see yourself, your neighbor, and the Father correctly. If you've ever tried to train for something, whether a race or weightlifting, um, any sort of sport, even studying for a test, you know that you can't start with the longest distance or the heaviest weight. Um, You can't pull an all-nighter the night before a test and expect to get 100 on it. I know that from experience. Um, The same is true in the kingdom of God. Jesus wants us to train for life in godliness within it. We aren't expected to be experts right away. We must train our hearts and minds first, and then behavior follows. This is training in a kingdom worldview. As we spend more time with him, we begin to see the world differently. That's our worldview beginning to shift. Our hearts become more tender toward those who are hurting Our fists that once tightly gripped our wallets become looser. Our relationships become less defined uh, by tit for tat and more defined by the unearned love and compassion of our Father. We become less consumed by fear and anxiety and more enthralled by true peace and comfort and joy that comes from knowing our omnipotent and providential Father. Guess what? As we train with Jesus, we still mess up. Our pride, our ego, our flesh, it's all still there. But Jesus came to fulfill the law and the prophets. There's grace abounding for us to accept in those moments. There's no room for shame in the kingdom of God because there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Throughout the rest of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus lays out in detail the realities of the kingdom of God. And knowing what we know about Jesus' authority, that he is fully God and fully human, we can trust that the reality of the kingdom of God is the ultimate foundational reality of our world. Throughout his sermon, Jesus covers topics of anger, lust, divorce, oaths, retaliation and revenge, loving your enemies, having the right motive for giving, prayer and fasting, the relationship we have to material goods, anxiety and worry, judging others, compassion, and how to recognize false teachers and disciples. And then he turns, his, uh, he turns to his concluding thoughts in the sermon. So let's look at Matthew 7, verse 21. So Jesus says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven on that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. So what do we, <laughs> what do, we do with a verse like that? Um, I, I, when I was preparing for today, I didn't want to include it. Um, because the effect these words can have on us can be very bad. Um, But it felt like a betrayal of the text and of Jesus' sermon to not include them and at least address them. The fact is that these three verses verses and the implications of them are scary. No followers of Jesus uh, even wants to think about hearing God tell you, I never knew you, depart from me. And the enemy would want nothing more than to have us all leave this morning doubting our salvation. But here's the thing. This is meant to be a wake-up call for all of us. It's not a promise of condemnation. The same was true for his original audience. The same is true now. It's a wake-up call. Right before these verses, Jesus says you can recognize those who follow him, not primarily by what they say, but by the fruit in their life. Jesus says, a healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. And I've been blessed enough to have seen the fruit of the Spirit made manifest in the lives of so many of you in this room, and I know when the day of judgment comes, you will get to hear those sweet words, well done, good and faithful servant. But just because we know that, just because we can have uh, security in our salvation, does that mean we just sort of kick back and wait to die? wait for him to return or wait for our own deaths. No, we continue to train for life in the kingdom. Lives defined by compassion and generosity. We continue to learn to perceive and interact with the world around us through a kingdom of God worldview. We continue to train so we can become the means by which the Beatitudes are the felt reality of the people we encounter. Jesus is training us to become those who include the poor in spirit. He's training us to become the type of people who comfort mourners. We are becoming more meek and less defensive and concerned with forcing our own agendas. As we train with Jesus, he creates within us a hunger and thirst for righteousness, and then he leads us down paths of righteousness to find satisfaction. We are becoming more merciful and pure in heart all while still living in a world that's built around people getting what they deserve. We are letting Jesus transform us into people who devote themselves to making peace, and that's a peace that's not only the absence of trouble, but holistic goodness in a fractured and hurting world. As our kingdom worldview becomes more defined, Jesus is helping us see that even in persecution and relational strife, It's not our job to muster up enough strength to persevere, but God has already put a spirit of perseverance within each of us and is showing us how to have joy even in the hardest and most trying of circumstances. The kingdom of God is the ultimate reality. It's the underlying foundational truth out of which God operates. And through an invitation into the easy and light yoke yoke of discipleship with Jesus, we can continue to dig up those old Worldly foundations that are crumbling away, those foundations of sand, and replace them with the sure foundational truth of the kingdom of God. So let's go back to our home verse, Matthew 7, verse 24. Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. The rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat on that house, but it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. Everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. The rain fell, the floods came, the winds blew and beat against the house and it fell and great was the fall of it. This is how Jesus concludes the Sermon on the Mount. And this is where we can find our practical application. Um, There's a Christian writer named James Sire who wrote a book called The Universe Next Door, and it's all about the concept of worldview. And he says, a person's worldview is the foundation on which they live. Like the foundation of a house, a person's worldview is hidden from view until a problem occurs or there's some sort of threat to the house itself. And we must remain humble enough to know that none of us have perfectly healthy foundations. Not one of us is ever uh, completely right all the time. None of us have arrived. Jesus is in process with each of us at all times on this side of the grave. He's leading some of us to fill in the cracks of our foundation to shore it up for the next storm. And guess what? That storm will likely do some damage to your house and expose some new cracks that you didn't know were there. Then he'll lead you to fill those in for the next storm. Um, And for some of us, he's leading us to completely deconstruct the house uh, so so he can help us lay a completely new foundation, a foundation that's unshakable and sure because it's rooted in the ultimate truth of the kingdom of God. Our world offers us countless ways to interpret the world around us, and all of them fall short of a true kingdom perspective. If you're politically active, whether you are conservative or liberal, can impact how you define justice and morality. Who you voted for can easily become an identity statement. What generation you were born in has tremendous impact over how you ascribe meaning to both good and bad. When you were raised and where you were raised significantly impacts your value system. What news network you interact with will influence your outlook on the state of the world and possibly even the state of the church. What denomination you belong to or even what church you attend within that denomination will communicate different things about the realities of the world and of God. The authors we read, the podcasts we listen to, the influencers we follow on Instagram, the Facebook comment sections we participate in, The TV shows and the movies we watch, everything we consume and experience in this world shapes our personal worldview without us knowing. And all those things have the potential of being wrong. Even me standing up here preaching this morning, I have the potential of saying all the wrong stuff because I've been wrong many times before and I will continue to be wrong. Um, So we must be diligent We must be diligent to not let reality be defined by anything other than the kingdom of God as revealed by Jesus. I'll say that again because it's important. We cannot let reality be defined by anything other than the kingdom of God as revealed by Jesus. This takes humility. It takes fighting back on the assumptions that we're right just because we found other people that agree with us or because it's just what makes sense, or because it's just what I've always believed. Our Savior, born of flesh and blood, wants us to be transformed into his image. And this is not some abstraction. We can know what Jesus would do and how he would behave in certain uh, situations because we have a record of his activity, and he is still alive today, being continuously revealed to each of us through the activity of his Spirit. Jesus was so firmly rooted in his functional worldview of the kingdom of God, rooted in the ultimate reality of heaven and earth, that no matter the temptation, he was obedient even to the point of death on a cross. For us to continue to let Jesus disciple us in the way of his kingdom, we must remain humble enough to sit at his feet, say, search me, O God, know my heart, try me and know my thoughts, see if there be any grievous way within me and lead me in the way everlasting. If we pray these words of Psalm 139, in full humility and sincerity, he will answer them. (laughs) Um, Maybe it will be through gentle means, like conviction of of, uh, the Spirit. Maybe he'll respond by sending a godly friend you love to have a hard conversation with you. Or maybe there will be a perfectly timed storm that will damage just enough of your house To expose some of those cracks in the foundation. And when he sends conviction, when he sends those things where you realize you were wrong, what do you do? We listen to the words of Jesus. He said, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Pride has no place in the kingdom of God. We know that God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. And here's the hard truth that damages my pride every time I hear it I have not arrived. I am not a completed work. And some of my personal assumptions are not only wrong, but they're harmful to myself and to other people. This is true for me, and it's true for you. And we bristle at that, and we don't like to hear that. It's because we're still learning what to do and how to feel when we are told we're wrong. But the kingdom of God is a reality where defensiveness has no place. Our impulse toward self-preservation is misguided, because we have a God who is constantly blessing and keeping us. And he has given us a context of grace, and he's given us a community of people on the same journey as us, in which we can work out the harmful assumptions and biases out of our uh, functional worldviews and root ourselves firmly in the realities of the kingdom of God. And as much as we want to hold on to the comfortable ways of the world, the ways of Jesus and the kingdom of God are so much better and in many ways, so much easier. So I have one last illustration before we wrap up. Um, one of the first dates Melissa and I ever went on was to watch the sunrise at the LSU Lakes. Um, there was a meteor shower. We stayed up late to watch that. We were like, hey, it's almost, <laughs> it's almost dawn. Let's go do this. Um, so if you've ever woken up early or stayed up late to see the sunrise, you know the location you choose can make or break the experience. So we picked a bench near the Lodcook Hotel uh, that faced east over the lakes. And um, when the sun rose, we barely saw any of it because there were so many houses and trees obstructing the view. Um, So if you're a fan of going to the beach, um, I'm sure you know how great a sunrise over the ocean is. Just nothing between you and the horizon, being able to see it rise over the ocean. So let's say it's the final day of your beach vacation and you want to celebrate by waking up early and watching the sunrise. The night before, you grab a towel, prepare a snack, program the coffee maker, and even queue up a perfect sunrise playlist. You walk out to the beach to scout out the perfect vantage point to see the sunrise and all of its glory. You double-check the time of dawn before going to bed. In the morning, everything goes according to plan. But as you're nearing dawn, it remains dark. Time passes, things become illuminated, but you don't witness a sunrise. Then you notice the light is coming from behind you. At that moment, you realize the beach is facing west, and the sunrise is happening behind you in the eastern sky. You realize in hubris the night before, you never even considered looking at a compass or checking the map to make sure you were facing the right way. God doesn't want us to miss the sunrise. He doesn't want us to miss out on a full life in his kingdom of beauty and goodness. He has created us to live a life full of love, compassion, forgiveness, mercy, generosity, and truth. And he's given us the tools to experience these things in fullness. Sometimes we willingly turn around and face west when he caused us to face eastward. Even in those moments of defiance, he sometimes lets us mercifully see his light as it illuminates the world from behind us. But things certainly seem darker when we're looking at the world and not at Jesus. In those moments, repentance is necessary so we can turn and follow him again. Other times, the problem is more subtle. Maybe the world sold us a compass that doesn't work. Maybe we knew of a great spot we used to watch the sunrise as a kid and assume it would be perfect, but upon returning, we realize the view has been obstructed by a new neighborhood that went up. Maybe the tribe in which you feel most at home says or sunrises, sunrises are best experienced while wearing sunglasses, and even though that seems illogical, you don 't want to go against the people who have accepted you. So you watch the sunrise through your brave bands and feel unsatisfied, but don 't want to say anything and potentially risk isolation. All of our foundations have cracks in them because we 're finite and broken people living in a finite and broken world, unless we are turning to Jesus to help us define our reality. Our worldly assumptions will be the hand that's upon the steering wheel of our lives. And we want Jesus to take the wheel, as a wise sage once wrote in a country song. Um, We need to be constantly humbling ourselves and asking the Spirit to reveal the unhealthy and harmful assumptions we each have that are impacting the way we behave. We can practice Spirit-led self-awareness by prayerfully asking exposing questions Questions like, what are the things that bring me the most anxiety? Where do I find the most fulfillment in life? Where do I find the most comfort? What makes me irrationally angry? Who are the people I have the hardest time loving and why? Are there any people or groups that I have trouble seeing as being created in the image of God? What major things in my life am I not praying about? We cannot let poorly informed assumptions about the world remain in our lives. And these are all questions we can ask to help expose the ways we are not living with a kingdom worldview. In the divine conspiracy, Dallas Willard uh, said, Jesus' good news about the kingdom can be an effective guide for our lives only if we share his view of the world in which we live. We must learn to perceive the world around us correctly before we can correctly live in it. And as Jesus leads us away from the broken and faulty perspectives toward a perspective of ultimate reality, reality as defined by the creator of all things, as he does that, everything in our lives change. Our friendships change, our marriages change, the way we parent and discipline our children, our relationships with family, how we make both big and small decisions, where we decide to live, where our kids will go to school, how we relate to money and all manners of uh, financial stewardship and generosity, our views on thankfulness, forgiveness, and retaliation, our relationship to politics, our chosen political party, how we approach all manners of justice and ethics, war, race, sexuality, gender roles, poverty and welfare, education, abortion, incarceration in the justice system, immigration, healthcare, even COVID-19 and masks. Jesus wants to impact the way we perceive and interpret literally everything in and around us so we can be aligned with the true reality of the kingdom. And as I went through that list, there were probably a few things I mentioned you have passionate beliefs about. And no matter how certain you are in thinking that you uh, are right about those things, I want to invite you to sit at the feet of Jesus and ask him for his input. In humility, bring those things to him in prayer, admitting that even with 100% certainty in your own mind, you may be wrong. And ask him to help you see the kingdom reality as it relates to those things. We can never stop engaging with Jesus. As Eugene Peterson says, eat this book, eat the Bible, consume it, consume the contents. Let the person of Christ as revealed in the Gospels become your closest friend And let his perspective become your own. He says, deny yourself, take up your cross daily, and follow him. And we follow Jesus into a renewed way of seeing the world around you, so that you may be transformed from the inside out. All right, so I'm going to pray, and we're just going to respond in worship. We've got a couple great songs that I think tie very well to the message. So join me in prayer. Father, you are good. Um, Lord, we have trouble seeing you sometimes. We have trouble hearing your voice. Our brains are not um, capable of fully experiencing the infinite, Lord. We have natural limitations, but Lord, we, we know you are there. We know that you are listening, and we know that your ways are better than ours. They're so much better, so much greater. And we have all lived lifetimes in a world that has trained us to see things a certain way, to believe certain things, both about other people and about you and about um, just how we are to go about our lives in this world. And God, I just pray that you soften our hearts toward the true reality, the reality that doesn't belong to any one denomination, any one political party, any one person or organization or thing, but Lord, the reality that you created and out of which you operate and love us. And God, I, I just ask you to humble us to let us see you like your beatitudes say give us pure hearts so we may know you and follow you God we love you everything in this book everything we talk about on Sundays everything we talk about in community groups is just so much better than we can even imagine So much more than we've even experienced up to this point. We are constantly learning to uh, go to new depths with you. So, God, let today be another day where uh, we take one more step down the paths of righteousness you're leading us down. God, thank you. We pray all this in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ.